Welcome back to Set Phasers to Stun. Today we have sci-fi survivalist Ant with us, and he's going to talk to us about staying alive in a hostile alien environment. Right, Ant, you've just been dropped on an alien world and you know nothing about it. What's the first thing you do? First thing I'm going to assume is that this is an alien planet with a breathable atmosphere. <laughs> well, otherwise, this is going to be a very short podcast. <laughs> it's a very short podcast, I was going to say. We've got a breathable atmosphere. We presumably have H2O around and that kind of stuff, potentially. We're going to have to find it. I'm going to assume I've been dropped down. Like This is a, an escape pod crash. There's a beacon going, giving some distress call. It may be broken, but it might be getting a distress call out. So rule one of survival is stay near your crashed vehicle where you can, unless there's any immediate danger around. So if I can see any like massive, seemingly threatening species around that kind of stuff, the first thing I would do is set up camp around the escape pod, providing it's not about to explode on me. Um, <laughs> then there's a hierarchy of things that you need to look out for when you're seeking to survive. It's the rule of threes, but the rule of threes is misleading because the threes themselves don't mean that, but the hierarchy is correct. So essentially, it's you can survive three minutes without breathable air, three hours in a harsh environment, so extreme heat, extreme cold, extreme wind, all that kind of thing, three days without water, three weeks without food. That gives you your order of priorities. However, those numbers are not right. You can survive a week without water, or people have survived a week without water. A lot of it is in the mind. It depends what you're doing. If you're literally just lying down, you'll probably survive longer because you're not using any resources. If you've managed to dig a little trench and you're hiding and you're sheltered, you're not going to be sweating. You're not going to be wasting water that way. So you've got more chance of survival anyway. But the order is important. So we've established that I can breathe or I have enough of an oxygen supply with me that came with the escape pod to be able to breathe. So the first thing to prioritize is always going to be shelter. And it seems counterintuitive because sometimes the urge is to walk around until you find water or food, but you've got a lot of time really before you need to worry about that. And given that we've crashed in an escape pod, I'm going to assume that there is some kind of survival kit in there. And by that, I mean, if we look at modern day sort of lifeboat survival, um, lifeboats do come with nine liters of water and emergency rations, you know, three kilos of food. So you've got some basics to get you going. So they're not an immediate concern. Shelter is. So the first thing to do would be to get a shelter up. When you're talking shelter, really, you want, and it sounds counterintuitive in a way, but for maximum comfort, you want your shelter to be as small as you can make it and still fit in because the less air there is around, the less there is to insulate. So you're going to be warmer, essentially. So is there a reason that you would seek out or build a shelter instead of just using your crashed escape pod? So I'm making the assumption that the escape pod is big enough to sit in, but possibly not big enough to lie in. However, use those materials you've got. So if you've got a seat in there, bring it out. You can use the padding as a mattress on the ground. Any cabling and wires you've got in there that aren't related to your escape beacon, they're going to be great for cordage. Because the other thing that's important to do in a survival situation is to keep your mind active. So if you're building a shelter, you're keeping that mind focused, you're keeping active potentially without being too active because you don't want to waste resources, but you're working for a goal and that goal is going to sustain you for the short term. And I'll assume that that's essentially just to avoid panicking because when you panic, you don't think clearly and you don't make good decisions. Exactly. And the key thing is to keep the brain focused on something. 
to keep those goals in mind. And that's why, again, like those five threes are important because it's once you've got your shelter up and if you're having to use the natural environment to build that shelter, if you haven't got, um, for example, in your escape pod, if your kit doesn't come with a thermal blanket, which you could use quite happily to string over a, a simple branch and make a very simple A-frame that would be insulated and waterproof, then you're talking about using leaf litter or any kind of materials you've got around. Now, the problem with natural materials is that you need a lot of them to protect yourself. So my arm is what a meter-ish. You probably want at least that in depth of insulating material around your shelter to keep dry, basically. Leaves work in a specific way. You know, they're designed so that water funnels down one way. So you make sure you've, you've got the leaf in the way that it's naturally designed to be used so it will funnel that water away from you. I appreciate that everyone can tell you are a survivalist trained in the UK by the fact that the first thing you said is don't get wet. Yeah, well, I mean, try not to, right? <laughs> I'm assuming I've landed on some temperate world here. This is the easiest challenge you've ever given me, Mick. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not on Hoth. I'm not on uh, Mustafa. <laughs> so what happens then if you do need to go and find water and it's not conveniently raining down straight onto you? So there's a number of things you can do. Um, one of the key things is to look at heading down slope if there's a slope around because water obviously runs down and is likely to pool. So if it has, if this is a planet where rain happens naturally, there's likely to be some pools anywhere that have gathered. Obviously that might be stagnant. So you're going to need some method of purification or at least filtration. Also, if there are plants around, digging is a good way of finding water. Another thing you can do is if you've got any kind of a transparent plastic bag, maybe the food rations in the escape pod were packed in them. If you tie those around a branch, if there's a tree around that's got leaves in the morning, provided everything's working as it does on our own world, the leaves will release the water, it will condensate in the bag, and you will have a limited amount, but some drinking water. And that raises actually an interesting question, which is, we are making some assumptions that we can follow the basic rules we follow here on Earth. But the whole point of this is that you're on a hostile alien world and you don't really know much about it. No, exactly. And I can imagine that that will raise some impossible challenges, like how are you supposed to know whether or not water even happens on the planet if you have no evidence? But there's a certain element of needing to gloss over that for practical purposes. Yeah. So taking it in terms of things like food, then, no matter what we know about things like gravity and air and water, how do you go about finding food in an environment you know nothing about? Well, I mean, the, the, the key things with any food, if you find something that you think you might be able to eat, whether that be a plant or an animal, we'll start with plant life because plant life is going to be easy to find. Because as soon as you start talking about animal meat, then you've got to start thinking about your methods of trapping, fishing, hunting. Have you got those skills anyway? And a lot of, I mean, I haven't got those skills. I could probably rig up a very simple trap. It probably wouldn't catch anything for a week. You've got to be able to locate those tracks of where animals use as runs. You know, animals are very, they're like us. They're creatures of habit. They will use the same trails. But as soon as you get your scent on those trails, game over. You've got to be really careful with that kind of thing. So when we're talking about plants, I would say that the rules that we follow on Earth are valid in any kind of situation on that, where it's a very long and very tedious process 
And I can only hope that our ancestors and our forebears followed these processes rather than just go, you eat this, and then if you die, we not eat, kind of thing. But essentially, the things you do is we have sensitive areas on our body, so the wrist, the elbow. First thing to do is if you've got a plant, divide it into its components, because on some plants, leaves are edible, flowers might not be, for example. So you get the different components of the plant in front of you and you treat each one separately because it is dangerous to assume that all parts of any plant are edible if one is. You know, that's true in our own world, let alone an, an alien environment. The first thing you would do is mulch a part of that plant up. You would put it on your wrist where you take your pulse or on your elbow because those are sensitive parts of the body. You wait eight hours. <laughs> If you've had a bad reaction, if it gets any kind of rash, you do not eat it. It's not good for your skin. It's not good for your insides. That's step one. The next step is you would do the same thing, but on your lips. And again, you wait for eight hours if you've got them. So if you're not absolutely starving, you know, this, this is something to do. Again, any kind of adverse reaction, any tingling, any itching, any soreness, you stop. Next thing you do, you chew some and spit it out. Again, if the inside of your mouth has any adverse reaction, don't bother. And then you can eat a teeny tiny amount, wait eight hours for any adverse reactions. And we all know what I'm talking about there. And if you haven't had any, it's probably safe to eat. However, you're probably still better off getting a fire going and cooking it. Whether that be boiling, if you found something that is close enough to water. I'm assuming we've got some kind of basic chemical analyzer. So if we found a liquid, we can say, yeah, this is close enough to water that I can risk it. Bold of you to assume that. What if we don't? Well, if we don't, then frankly, um, you just have to suck it and see. <laughs> but again, tiny amount. See if you have an adverse reaction. If you can, take maybe a cupful, get a fire going, boil it. You want to have it on a rolling boil for at least a minute, really. The longer, the better. But of course, the longer you boil something for, the more water you're losing. So, you know, it, it's kind of that risk reward. So is there merit then in covering it while you boil it so you keep it? Yes, but you still want to make sure it's at a rolling boil and it's going for as much of the time as you can. I mean, this kind of brings me on to the five C's, which is... If you're putting together or if you have any kind of survival kit or survival tin that you put together, there's five C's that you essentially want to cover in it. You're cutting, combustion, cover, container and cordage. So cover, we've already talked about that's you know, a thermal blanket is perfect. Even a plastic bin bag is great because you can either just put it on yourself as a poncho, cut a hole in for your head, or you can use it to make a shelter out of. And it will be waterproof enough as long as you don't rip it. Obviously, if there's any sandstorms or, you know, violent storms that send shards of rock flank, it's going to get ripped. But in a pinch, it will do you. Cordage is some kind of rope. I talked earlier about from that escape pod, taking any cabling and any wires you can. They'll make brilliant cordage. I always have some like paracord on me, whether it be just on my key ring, I've got some or in my various survival kits that I put together just for the fun of it because I'm... I'm not out in the wild as much as it sounds like I am. But I suppose you never know when aliens might drop out of the sky and whisk you off to somewhere you weren't expecting. Well, this is it. I have a tin on me that's, it's just like a two ounce tobacco tin and it's got most of these basics in. I don't have any cover in that. One of the other sees is container. And when you've only got a little tin, you can get a bit of water in, you boil it, you have a sip, you have to do it again. You know, you keep going. 
it's better than nothing but if you can have just a pot or a mug or something that you can use that is in a heat resistant material so not a plastic container to be fair you can boil water in a plastic container you just have to make sure you're not touching the flame when you do it but if you've got like an aluminium container or even like a big like old tuna tin like a can that you've just emptied out those sorts of things are great the other two c's are cutting and combustion and these in my mind are two things that you should never really be out unless you absolutely have to so cutting any kind of blade so we've come out of space in an, in an escape pod there's probably all kind of scientific wonderful gadgets and stuff out there you're not going to go wrong with a simple knife because any advanced technology tool is going to require some kind of power it's going to run out a blade doesn't require that you can use a knife you can chop you can cut you can do all sorts with it you can fix it to a pole to use as a spear a knife of some kind is is an essential and considering that our space pod has crashed, we might be able to use bits of space pod as well. Yes, absolutely. So you could cut those off or depending what the whole of our space pod material is, we could use elements of that to make a blade if we needed to. You get a rock, you can do some basic flint napping on the metal hull where you get a rock and you literally just bash an edge into it. You flatten that edge as much as you can. It won't be pretty. It won't be amazing, but it will cut. So it will give you an edge pun intended <laughs> and then the, the the fifth c is com is combustion and that is having some method of starting a fire that you can keep dry whether that be a flint and steel a lighter weatherproof matches anything that you can use to do that as soon as you need to start a fire with the natural materials around you unless you've really practiced those skills even on our own world it's hard to do. I have failed every time I've tried to use a bow drill because my stamina just hasn't been there. I've run out of energy in my arm, basically just trying to get an ember going. It is hard. So having something that makes that easier and stops you expending that energy unnecessarily is going to help you. And there's lots of materials that you can use for that. If you've got any tampons around, they're brilliant because they're watertight anyway. You open them up, get the cotton out. Cotton is a brilliant flammable material. If you've got anything that can make spark or any kind of thing, that gives you your basic tinder from which you can get a fire going. Once we've got fire going, we can boil water. We can cook meat. We can boil those plants and make them safer. We're not quids in, but we're safer. Okay, so you've been doing all this, but nobody's coming to help. Longer term, what should you be looking at? So longer term, you need to establish an area where you can thrive you want to move from survival to thriving at that point and that is hard especially if you're on your own so having people with you is both a curse and a blessing not just because i'm antisocial but it is that thing of a you've got to share resources but b you've got that community around and you can split the work you know it's six or one half does the other I, I did apply for the second season of the island with bear grills had to pull out because the, when they were filming was when my daughter was going to be born and I figured I would come off the island and be immediately murdered. Not exactly good for survival being murdered. What would you say then, you're in this hostile alien environment and you have someone with you and they are not as experienced a survivalist as you. Is it better to keep them with you and help them learn and look after them? Or is it better to run off and survive on your own and use fewer resources? No, I would always say having someone with you is more of a boon than not and i say this as an antisocial person essentially if the person is willing 
to learn and let's face it in a survival situation they should be then that again it's that focus of mind so if you can transfer those skills to someone then that is going to keep you focused going to make you feel good. i always feel good whenever if i can teach someone something they can look after themselves i can move on it's one of the reasons why i do scouting and why i teach especially the, the six to eight year olds because if i can get even one of them learning some of these skills then i've won as far as i'm concerned but having that person around yes you've got to share those resources but having someone around that you can talk to stops you going mad but there does come a point where by nature humans are social beasts whether we admit to it or not we are <laughs> well we've always been creatures who exist in communities and rely on one another for support and even if you take it back to our earliest roots when we were slow speed predators you can't take a large animal down with just one of you no matter how tired that large animal is no so humans have evolved to require coexistence exactly and that's you know going back to then the longer term survival thing that's you mentioned large beasts there actually that's a good point so if there are herds of larger beasts around it's a good idea to follow them to do that migration pattern like the sami people still do you follow the herd and you don't over consume you know you take what you need and that's it that's something we should take away anyway as people which is just take what you need don't kill for fun i know you also mentioned trapping earlier so when you're engaging in hunting and trapping what happens if you get something you don't want and it fights back? So that's where having that cutting tool comes in handy because you either have to leave it trapped to suffer and die or you have to try and put it out of its misery. And I know which one of those I prefer. One of them is safer than the other and I'm going for the not safe option in this case because I don't like seeing things suffer. Let's say we've encountered a six-legged boar-like creature that we don't know if is edible. What that boar-like creature may have is skins, potentially furs, so we can use it not just as a food resource, we can use it for shelter. What about things that are hunting us? Yeah, now we've entered a whole new board <laughs> So, for example, if I was where you are in Canada, I would like to think I could identify an area where bears were and avoid them. On an alien world, I don't know what the habits of creatures are. I can't look for the scrapings on trees. I can look for those signs. They may be similar. They may not be. These large predators may actually live. It may be a lower gravity world. They may live higher in the trees. You know, they may be able to get higher. They may be above me. I don't know. They may be underground and pop up and get me. You know, I don't know all the signs. But I think if you're in an environment that you are not 100% comfortable in, you see any kind of signs of something that looks like it is more formidable than you are, and let's face it, on an alien planet, that's probably anything. You kind of want to be going the other way, the way that those signs aren't. And you want to not draw attention to yourself as much as you can. If you do encounter, you want to back away slowly, keep to yourself a bit. If you get charged, then you're kind of down to whatever skills you have. I would be dead at that point, frankly. <laughs> Is it a back away slowly in every possible situation kind of thing? Or are there tools that can help us decide when we should be backing away and when we should, for instance, be trying to intimidate the thing we're facing? So that, again, requires a knowledge of what you're facing because you don't know how it's going to react. In general, 
being non-threatening tends to be a better way forward. On our world, having fire will keep animals away. And one of the things you can do with your shelter is, especially if there's any sort of prickly, thorny plants around, is use them. They've evolved those thorns for a reason, and that is to keep creatures away. So you use those. You make a fence out of them around your area, the area you're trying to protect that is yours. Fear of the unknown tends to be a fairly common characteristic in animals, including humans. So I suppose things like a fire if they haven't seen one before or a space pod if they haven't seen one before might encourage them to give you a healthy boundary as well. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the thing of maintaining those boundaries and not being obviously afraid or obviously aggressive because most animals will react negatively to aggression. You're threatened, you you fight back, or if they're smaller and they're a prey animal, they may run away. Also not to your advantage because you could have potentially eaten that or used its fur or you know whatever other resources it has. But again, you've got to be careful with, let's say you've taken down our six-legged ball creature, you've got to be careful still because although, for example, offal, so the kidneys, the liver, the heart, usually very nutritious, eating the liver of a polar bear will kill you. Vitamin A overdose. Do you think rabbits are? They're small, they're tasty, they're easy to catch. There's plenty of them. But if you just eat rabbits, you'll die because they're so lean. There's no fats in them. The human body needs the different types of nutrients. It needs the fats. It needs the carbohydrates. It needs the vitamins. It needs the protein. You can't just live on protein alone as much as I would love to. <laughs> but yeah, you've got to be careful. Even if you've found or you fished something and it's seemingly edible, you need that varied diet, especially when you're trying to move into that thriving mode. And at that point as well, you want to think about things like starting to set up some kind of rudimentary farm. So any of these plants you've found that are edible, you kind of need to discover what their life cycle is and work out when you should be planting them. And that's where having multiple people, again, comes in because you can have people in those different roles, you know, some gardening, some out hunting or building. As a survivalist, then, when do you make that transition? At what point do you decide help isn't coming and switch from short-term skills to long-term skills? It's a tough one. Personally, I would be looking to get into thriving as early as I can, even if I still think there is help coming. Because the quicker you can get into that mindset of, I can make a home here, and start making the home, you become more comfortable and more accepting of your situation. The mindset, the psychology is key. So what's the one survival skill you'd recommend everyone on Earth learn now for the time when they are picked up by aliens and dropped on a strange world? So the one skill I would say to learn, even barring that event, is firelighting. Being able to get a fire going, because although I said earlier that, you know, shelter is more important anything that is some kind of block against environment work you don't need any particular skills but being able to get a fire going the the psychological advantage of having warmth at night because even if you're on a desert planet at night it is going to get cold that's the nature of deserts so being able to have some kind of flame in front of you even if it's just a tea light it gives you such a psychological boost so being able to get a fire going in as many different conditions as you can is phenomenal. So last question then, what are some of the best and worst examples of actual survival you've seen in science fiction? 
I'm going to start with the best because no, I'm going to no. I'll start with one that's not so good, and then we'll end on a high. So, I recently rewatched Star Trek Enterprise, which is honestly my second favorite Star Trek after Strange New Worlds. I am that guy. It was my favorite for a long time until Strange New Worlds came along, and I will follow Christopher Pike to the ends of the universe. But Captain Archer, I will also do so, except for in the episode Desert Crossing where essentially the premise of the episode is Captain Archer and Chief Engineer Tripp get invited to a village that is under attack from the government, blah, blah, blah. Essentially, they're terrorists, but the crew of the Enterprise don't know that. Bombings happen. They immediately then run away. And the mistake they make from day one is they run. So they're in the desert. They are moving. They're traveling in daylight. They go to their shuttle pod, gather minimal supplies, which is essentially a water bottle each, and that's about it. And then they walk, and in the way of science fiction in general, they happen upon a building where they can shelter, that gets bombed and stuff. But they make so many mistakes in that episode, they don't have enough water, they're walking during the day in a desert, they leave the shuttlecraft, they should have stayed near it. Because although the government was bombing for the terrorists, they weren't a target. They just did so much wrong. You know, they they could have dug a shelter out of a sand dune, stayed out of the sun. Lots of things you could do there. The one thing I do like about that episode is it's chronologically the first episode where a, well, laser pistol in that example, but a phaser essentially is used to warm up rocks for a survival purpose. And that's used in the next gen quite a bit. You know, and I quite like that. Ah, but is it set to stun? No, it's set to war. <laughs> they push the 30-second start button. <laughs> yeah, they push, they, they, they push the defrost, say, the way they went. So tell us then about a better example of survival. It's a bit of a cheat, I'll be honest, because it is, it's more about that learning to thrive in a hostile environment, and it's due. And I am not the biggest fan of the novel Dune. I think it's long and tedious. My wife will now kill me. However, the Fremen and descriptions of the Fremen and how they have learned to survive in that environment and thrive in that environment is masterful. And I think it's reflective of how societies on our own world learn to thrive in different environments. But the fact that you have the Harkonnen there who are essentially trying to dominate the world and that doesn't work... The Atreides come in, and Paul in particular, he learns those skills. And yes, there's the whole kind of mystical, he's going to do it because he's the one and all the rest of it. However, he understands the society. He's researched the society. He's gone in with that knowledge. And that, for me, in particular, is the key theme. The fact that he has researched, he's learned, he understands something about the environment before he gets there, despite having experience. And that's where I'm coming from with a lot of this. I do bushcraft courses. I've been out in the woods in the UK, and that's kind of my experience. But I have read a bit about desert survival in case I'm ever in that situation. I've read about extreme Arctic survival. Just in case you come to visit me. Just in case I come to visit you, Vic. And it's going to happen. We all know it's going to happen at some point. And yeah, I think that openness that Paul has in particular to learning about an environment and a society and how that society operates and thrives within a hostile environment, I think is key. And we were talking about animals on Alien Worlds earlier, but knowing how to move so that a sandworm doesn't think you're there, those skills, without having researched that environment, he wouldn't have. I think that genuinely is great, and it's quite inspiring. I can see myself 
on a desert world, carefully avoiding any shallow craters that might be housing thresher moles. <laughs> oh, I love a good thresher mole, though. I'd have my Mako with me. <laughs> really, the overall message is the same as the message of sci-fi in general, which is keep an open mind and learn. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. And it's one of the reasons I love sci-fi, because you, you do, you learn. A lot of my interests outside of sci-fi and fantasy have come from sci-fi and fantasy. That what if is important and keeping an open mind and learning about cultures or environments. For me, it's key. You, know, you need to do that. Set Phasers to Stun is hosted by Mick Schubert with music by Sam Watts. You can find Mick at MickSchubert.com and Sam at SamWatts.com. And you can find Set Phasers to Stun on every major podcast platform, as well as at setphaserstostun.substack.com.